The Deviation Podcast. Today on the Deviation Podcast, I'm with Matt Lane. Matt, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Matt Lane. Uh, I'm an avid outdoorsman, uh, wannabe knife maker. Started getting into hunting this year, so I usually try and do something new every couple years. Seeing if I can find my passion. That's something I struggle with is finding a consistent hobby besides working out. Uh, I spent six years in the Army, did five years working for Department of Energy, and now I'm going to school. What are you studying in school? Uh, Right now it's computer science and hopefully moving on to cybersecurity. What was your role in the Army? Uh, I spent time as an infantryman and also as a combat engineer. I did active duty. I was an infantryman with the 101st Airborne. And then I spent a few years with the National Guard, and they didn't have an infantry unit, so I switched MOSs, went combat engineers, and then went to a sapper platoon. What is MOSs and what's a sapper platoon? (laughs) So MOS is a military occupation specialty, so it's pretty much your job that you have in the military. Okay. And there's lots of jobs. And then the sapper? So... You have an engineer company, and in that engineer company, you have people that can operate heavy machinery, but also you got a unit that does more explosives, so it could be bringing down bridges, buildings, whatever needs to be blown up, Mm -hmm. and so that's that's what a sapper is, so they they do more demo stuff, demolition. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Utah. Why did you decide to join the Army? Because that's been a huge part of your life, right? Yeah, it has. So ever since I was little, I knew I wanted to join the military. My dad spent 23 years in the Navy and uh, really wanted me to join the Navy. He told me stories about it. But I always always wanted to be the guy on the ground. And so pretty much the job that the Navy had were were the Navy SEALs. So that's originally what I wanted to do. But because I have bad eye vision, uh, I couldn't get in. Later on, they had LASIK, and there was ways to get LASIK and get in, but I didn't want to wait till I was older to join, so from there, I kind of looked at the different branches, and Army kind of had the best routes that you could go, and so join the Army, join, join the infantry. Why did you want to join so quickly? Like, why didn't you want to wait? I mean, I, I always knew I was going to join the military, and I couldn't really see myself doing any other jobs, and so right out of high school... I mean, I was still in high school when I joined, and then I left for basic training at age 17. Just wanted to get on with it, so. Did you love it? I did. I mean, there's always bad times. There's a lot of miserable times, but, I mean, even in the misery, you find you find good, and you have good times with good people, so. Was there a specific experience that you were like, you know what, this is so awful right now, but because of such and such experience, like it, it makes it all worth it. Yeah. 
I mean, knowing that you're helping other people, um, keeping the country safe, but also, I mean, so I guess to go back on that, I joined the military wanting to help other people. And so for me, that's a noble cause. And I think keeping my eye on what I was doing and what I was doing was right. Kind of helped solidify, solidify that. So That's a wonderful reason. Yeah. What was it like being in? Uh, it was tough. This was probably six months after September 11th. Got to my unit. And then eventually you were deployed, correct? Yeah, so I didn't get deployed to Afghanistan right after September 11th happened. So I had to wait until 2003 for the buildup, getting ready for Iraq. And then... We got deployed to Kuwait, and then once the war kicked off, we air assaulted into Iraq and started clearing the cities from the south, from the south up. What did your life look like at that point? Uh, I was 19. I was fairly young. wasn't in the army very long, so I mean, all this stuff was was new but exciting at the same time. I think when I was a kid, I always dreamed of going to war, and it's one of those things where. Sounds so cool until you're, you go, and then you realize the cost of war and how much it can suck. Can you go into a little more detail about that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, in war, war needs to be a last, last resort because, I mean, there's just carnage and destruction that's, that's left on both sides. There's going to be loss on both sides, and I've had good friends that, that died in war, and you also see the, the cost of it from the civilian side, too. But I think it was a necessary thing, so I think that to keep that in your, in your mind of what you're doing is, is something right and liberate, liberating these people from oppression was... Uh, was a big gift and I think for the main part a lot of these people wanted it but they didn't know what to do with it but -hmm. they were definitely grateful for it because I mean Saddam and his sons were terrorized this country and hearing some of these stories of what they would do to people and just saying something bad about Saddam was enough for a death sentence or to go to a torture chamber it was pretty gruesome and nasty and kind of solidified why, why we were there, what we were doing. Did any, did any story or even not necessarily their story, but the person telling it stick out for you? Um, I think the stories that kind of stuck out, um, so as we invaded... The Iraqi army went into these, these towns and these cities and told them that they have to fight us as we come in. And they would, they would tell them stuff about us that weren't true. Like, to join the military, you got to kill your firstborn and just all kinds of propaganda. And they would make these people take up arms against us. And if they didn't, they would totally decimate the people. And I remember we were... Oh, I can't even remember what city, but I remember we air assaulted it 
into this this area and we were on top of a hill and I was on guard duty at the time and you could kind of see the lights from the city and I remember my first sergeant coming up to us telling us that you know these people were forced to fight us but they told them that they weren't going to so they they shot all these people and there's bodies littered on the bridges into the city and uh, we ended up aerosolding into a different area but we didn't see the carnage but for some reason that story kind of stuck out and it's just it's the evil that that it, that exists in the world that people don't want to admit but I mean that's how a lot of these countries are so it felt like by being part of the armed forces you could you could do something about it you didn't just have to hear about it yeah affect change mm-hmm. into uh I don't know, fight for people that can't fight for themselves. I think for me that was one of the biggest things that drew me to the infantry was was being a direct action and being able to to help these people out. What did you do in the Army? Like, what did a, a day in your life look like? Deployed or stateside? Deployed. Uh, so we were running and gunning for, for most of that deployment because at that time... It was still declared war. And so what they would do is they drop us off at the ed- edge of the city by helicopter, and we would have to go through these cities and clear it. So the war in Iraq's a little bit different than Afghanistan because it's more urbanized, and so you got to be careful with collateral damage. So we would have to, to clear these areas by boots on the ground. You couldn't just drop bombs in these areas. For us, it would drop us off. We would clear these areas. And then um, we would hold up into a a school or another building. And then next day, go clear. A lot of times we'd fight at night because we had night vision. So we we owned the night. So a lot of times when we're doing missions and different stuff, we'd usually be at night because we'd have the advantage. But... Yeah, it was just day in, day out, going, going, going. And then towards the the end of the war, it somewhat slowed down, but we were still conducting raids nightly. You told me me a while back that you guys were ahead of the supply trains for the majority of your deployment or a portion of your deployment. One of the problems that we faced uh, during the first part of the war was we were moving so fast and gaining so much ground that our support elements, which are usually behind the the main attacks or the main elements. And so we were moving so fast and getting so far ahead that there was times that we ran out of water. We didn't have food. I mean, we were living out of a rucksack for a while. It was, it was very basic stuff that we had and it, it was miserable. And I remember one time we, we went to a uh, training camp. After we, we cleared the training camp, we kind of took a couple-hour break, and people were just dropping like flies, like they were passing out because lack of water. And then the problem that we had was the medics couldn't just give them IVs because if we have people get shot, we got to give them IVs, so you're out of water. So we had to share what we got and... I think there was a couple times where I drank local water and probably wasn't the best idea, but... So, how many deployments did you do? 
so I did one to Iraq, and then when I was with the National Guard, we did a humanitarian mission to Nicaragua. Went there for about a month, and then during Hurricane Katrina, we got deployed out, out there to Louisiana for that. I assume all of these deployments were incredibly different. They were. So it, it was kind of interesting because I got to fight a war, uh, did a humanitarian mission, and then also did a emergency relief for a natural disaster. So I guess really the only mission that I didn't do was a peacekeeping mission, but I got to hit three out of the four, I guess, in my six years. What was it like being in a humanitarian mission? What did you do? In Nicaragua, what we did was a lot of uh, building schools and hospital clinics for these people because they're dirt poor, middle of nowhere. It was a little weird because my first deployment was to Iraq, and then in 2005, so a year after, found myself in Nicaragua, but I still had that same mindset, so it was it was a little difficult to try and transition from, you know, a permissive environment or a super dangerous environment to one that's dangerous, but definitely not as risky. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that you felt like you were on high alert all the time? Yeah. So, I mean, any time I'm, I'm overseas and in the uniform, I guess I was always kind of amped up and high alert. Was that detrimental to you or to to your team? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the problem with, with being in the red or being on high alert all the time is the mental toll it takes because if you can't find a time to relax and kind of unwind, it's going to drive you nuts. When did you notice that it started to affect you? I think I was in denial for a little bit, but... When I noticed I kind of had some some problems with the transition to civilian life was when my son was born. Because uh, a lot of these skills are skills that keep you alive over there, but it wears you out and it keeps you amped up. And the problem with that was trying to interact with, with my family at the time. Uh, my son was born, you know, newborns cry a lot, and he used to cry and scream a lot when he was born, and I used to struggle with that. Like, I would hate hearing the sounds of crying and the screaming, and, you know, I struggled with that. And I was always angry and, and yelling all the time and, and, and had some transition problems, and so I ended up having to go talk to a shrink and kind of... I guess talking about my feelings, which is something I'm not very good at, but in the long run, it was it was good because I knew I didn't want to have some of those bad relationships that some of the the Vietnam or the the previous generation veterans had, because I remember talking to some of them and them telling me that their relationships with their kids are kind of rocky and and not very well, and so I knew needed to get some help because I didn't want to kind of have that psychological damage done to my kids. Was there a particular point where you realized that 
you needed to get some help? Yeah, I remember. Uh, so I was doing private security at this point for Department of Energy. And, and so I'd work four days and get four days off. And so I was watching the kid that night. And I just remember he kept crying and crying. And I just I wanted some me time, some time for myself alone to, to think. Because that's one thing I would do quite a bit was isolate. And he was just crying and I was just getting so so mad and just yelling and cursing and then I was like crap I need to get home so I kind of took a couple deep breaths uh, picked up my son held him I think for me that was that was the point that I was like something's not right I shouldn't be this angry all the time and uh, I need to talk to somebody how did that go it was hard I think at that time um, there was a lot of, I guess, taboo that went along with, with, with the PTSD or, or different problems, you know, for my transition period. And, uh, I think not a lot was, was known like there is today, but at that point, you know, there was the feelings of you're weak or, you know, this is normal and this is how you're supposed to act. And it was just all these different feelings, I guess, tugging on me at once. And yeah. Yeah. That can't be easy going from being in the armed forces for so long and going on so many deployments that were all different and required you to adapt as you went and then going back to civilian life and having children and just, I guess, I could be wrong about this, but it almost sounds like the expectation is that you're going to go back to civilian life and be totally fine and just not have it be like you were just in war or just saving people or just walking around with a gun on you all the time. Yeah, right? I think I think that's one of the hard part. Um, so, so I got back from Iraq in 2004. So, I mean, the wars were only going on for three years. And they would, they would train you to go to war, but one thing they didn't teach you was how to come home from war and kind of how to decompress. Because I literally went from doing patrols and raids to being stateside within 48 to 72 hours and like being on, on a weekend pass and found myself in Nashville within three days and just, you know, for me, the, the feelings and the emotions were still from over there because, you know, that's what we did for, for 11 months. And it's hard to go from the combat mindset to just, hey, relax, have a good time. You're human. You can't just, like, flip an off switch. I mean, I, I didn't know you then. I know you now. And you're... Um... I know you well now, so it's not like I'm just, like, meeting you on the street type of thing, but you're pretty relaxed. Like, we laugh, we go climbing. Like, you're a very easy person to get along with. Um, I mean, I can see the intensity sometimes. Um, but how have you gotten to this point? Like, what does that path look like? Because uh, I feel like most people... I don't know. We live in a society where people don't talk about that. They just talk about, oh, 
well, yeah, this is what my life was like then. And this is what it's like now. And you're just like, okay, great. That's awesome. But there's a path to get there. Uh, I think there's still chaos, chaos in my head. Um, I think I've learned to adapt. So I, I tend to put on a front. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely doing the best I have since I've been back. And a lot of it's those hard-learned lessons. And, I mean, I, I still struggle with things. And a lot of times I'll put on a front for people so they don't ask me questions or so I don't look out of place. So I think in a way it's it's kind of camouflage that I use to blend in. Um, and I, th- I think there's a lot of people that, that do that, you know, and that's... I think that's that's normal for the vets because anytime you're standing out people are going to ask you questions or are you okay can I do something for you and that can get old real quick um and usually when they're behind closed doors is when they figure out a way to to cope with those those emotions and it definitely gets mentally draining but uh I do know that staying busy is one thing that that really helps me so I make knives I go climbing um, usually go for a hike usually hit up the range so I'm, I'm doing all these things to stay busy in a way to keep me from thinking about things because you know some of my low points was when I would isolate and not hang out with people and and not talk with people and I think being alone with those thoughts and feelings were definitely a dangerous combination, and it can be. Is there a way for you to like not have to put on camouflage and put on a front and still still be open with people? Because I imagine that gets exhausting. Yeah. I don't know if I'm to that point yet, but usually when I'm alone, I can, but... I don't know. It's 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 a tough one, and it's something I'm still working on. And I think it's going to be one of those things that I continuously have to work on. Some days I'll head for the mountains, um, or hang out at home. But I think everybody's different. I think they handle it differently, um, and that's that's just one way I do because I know. If I get cornered or forced into something when I'm having these bad, bad days, then for me, I get violent and I like violence (laughs) and I think it comes naturally after being in that environment. And so for me, I just, I need to have my space. Um, so do you feel like you're your lowest point was right before you decided to get get into therapy or was there a different low point that kind of switched things for you had you realize i need i need to make a bigger change um, and i want to make a bigger change cuz i guess the the desire to do so is always key right yeah so i think i i've had a few low points i think for me this journey is just it's like a roller coaster ride. Like there's always going to be low points. I think a couple low points that stand out is right before I got help because I didn't know why I was acting these way this way. I didn't know why I had these feelings. 
and I didn't know how to control it. And then probably the next low point was as I was getting a divorce. Um, so I was living in Arkansas at the time and I have two kids and I think one of the hardest decisions I had to make was either stay in Arkansas with my kids, which I was miserable there. I didn't know a lot of people, didn't have any friends. So my options were either stay there and be there for my kids, but in a way not being able to be there because of me being miserable and me trying to to deal with my issues and kind of work through them or move to Utah where my family is and a few of my army buddies are and kind of work on things that way. And so I decided to move back to Utah and, uh, you know, it, it was a low point because I wanted to be there for my kids. My kids mean everything. And really that's, that's why I got help. And I think that's why I continued to get help is to be a better person for them. And it it was just such a tough decision. Like both decisions suck. So it was like, all right, pick this less shitty. Yeah. And they say that thing when you're, when you're in an airplane, they say, put on your own oxygen mask before you help anybody else. Because you're right. There's no way for you to, there was no, and will never be a way for you to be there for your kids. If you're not there for yourself. Yeah, that's very true. Did you feel like it was hard to be understood by other people? Because it's like, like for me, for example, like the last time you and I spoke, um, I related to and continue to relate to so much of what you say, because even though I've never been to war and I'm not, I'm not in the armed forces, a lot of the issues that you struggle with are different, but similar to things that I struggle with was it hard to feel understood by people or even like in me saying what I'm saying now, is it hard to feel like, well, yeah, like I get what you're saying, Paige, but you, there's no way for you to really get it. If that makes sense. I think I never really tried to be understood. I don't think I really cared to have people understand me. I guess in a way, I think it's one of those things where unless you've experienced it, yourself it's it's impossible to to understand Mm -hmm. and I know that there are similarities but there's a lot more layers to I think the issues with the military so I mean for example you know if you've been in a horrific car accident abusive relationship whatever I mean you can you can get these these same same problems, right? PTSD, whatever you want. Reconnaissance missions, doing raids, doing IED patrols. I mean, we were just doing stuff all the time that we didn't have really time, I think, to to mourn or or talk about things. And so I think having all that stuff bottled up, and I I think still to this day, I don't know how to. I don't know how to grieve. I don't know how to really deal with death because I, I've saw a lot of death and destruction but I think in a, in a way I just kind of shoved it down my throat and put it in a deep dark place and try not to revisit it but I think it's one of those things that I haven't really had a chance to uh, to really grieve about I guess 
And I think in the military, emotions, there's really no place place for for emotions because you got to focus on the mission, on the job. I mean, I, I do think there's a time and place for it. And I didn't really get that chance to. Um, which definitely makes it difficult. So it's been a long road getting where you've gotten and it sounds like there's still... I mean, how old are you? I'm 34. And you're still in the journey. I mean, did yeah. you did you ever think when you got out that you'd be able to get to the point that you're at now? Did that seem plausible? I think when... I mean, my original plan was, was to stay in, be a lifer. But like most plans, they, they change. Things happen. Things happen out of your control. Um... But I think at first, like, I was just in denial. Like, you know, even though I'm having nightmares or I have excess anxiety and and these different feelings, I was just kind of in denial. Like, oh, it's fine. Kind of brush it off, brush it to the side. Um, But a few years in, I I didn't think I was going to be able to make it to this point. Like, I'm definitely doing the best I have, but I'm also not where I want to be. But I don't know if I'll ever make it to where I want to be. That makes sense. Where do you want to so be? it's a journey. Um, that is a really good question. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's, that's part of my process is, is trying to figure out my passion, what I want to do, and uh, I think it's something that I'm still trying to trying to figure out. Don't really know yet, but trying things out, I've I found a lot of things that I don't want to do. I haven't found what I want to do. So when did when did you deviate from your original plan of being a lifer? Um. Or so, why did you, I guess? So I wanted to take a little break and get some rest because I think mentally I was so drained from from that first deployment. Um, there were certain circumstances that happened that, I guess, made me mad about things, and I, I, I just kind of needed a break. And so my original plan was to to join the National Guard and then join the 19th Special Forces Group. Um but when I, when I transitioned, I met my, my ex-wife, who was soon to be my wife at that point, and had a kid, and I knew I didn't want to be deployed all the time. And so that, that was kind of a tough decision because I still had friends still in the fight, and I still wanted to be in the fight, but at the same time, wanted to be there and raise, raise my son. So it was kind of a, a tough, tough decision there. And then I was able to get the job working for Department of Energy, so I thought maybe that would fill that void. Mm-hmm. And it was a really good job, paid really well, but, yeah, it didn't fill that void. Mm-hmm. guess I was naive thinking that. It's understandable, though. Yeah. I think that was the hard part was... I mean, I joined the Army when I was 17, 
and spent years doing that, like that's really the only skills I've had was how to be a professional soldier and 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 how to go to war and and fight wars. And so I think that job was a good transition because we had fully automatic weapons. We we had armored vehicles. I mean, we we had great funding and you know, it was fun. It was boring at times, but you know, it was it was a good job. Was it hard to be in the space of okay, I need to readjust to civilian life and adjust to like living at home with a family and things like that while still going to work and having it be similar to what it was like during your deployment? It was c- kind of crazy because transition into that job it was like I was still in mm-hmm. um, so we still worked on room clearing we did patrols you know I wore a military uniform it's it's like a paramilitary organization and so I think in a way looking back on it and in some of the talks I've had it's almost like I didn't leave the military because I was still doing I mean with the exception of the fighting, it was still playing that role, I guess. And so it it was definitely difficult to go from four days on to four days off and then trying to be the family man. And I mean, essentially it took its toll and, you know, my life got turned upside down, got a divorce, ended up having to seeking out help like we talked about mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Are you glad you deviated from your original plan? Like, are you looking at this full picture now? Do you like the way things have turned out? And are you grateful for it? Or do you sometimes wish they had gone differently? I think I'm always going to miss being in the military. And I definitely, at times, wish I was still in. But thinking about... The cost of staying in is definitely a, a difficult one. And I definitely have much respect for, for the people that have put in the 20 years and stuff. So I think in a way I'm glad, but in a way I'm not. I think it's just one of those internal struggles. And it, it was really difficult having friends going back over there. And... I was a team leader at one point and seeing my guys going back over there and then like getting ready to go and telling me, Hey man, I wish you were coming. And, and I think in a way that was almost probably harder than the things I had to do over there because it was not being there for them. And I felt guilty. Yeah. So it's one of those, those internal battles be nice if there was always just like a clear-cut decision of like no like this is going to be the best thing all around i'm just going to be solidly happy with it all of the time yeah i wish but i i think that's life for everybody i mean it's oh yeah not exclusive to the military i think it's the same for anybody i mean just because you have a good job doesn't mean you're happy so it's like do i leave that job and and the money for something i'm a little bit happier at but then i struggle paying the bills and so I think there's there's always good and bad to to everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, I know in the past several years you've gotten really into fitness. Yeah, so I think for me I didn't realize the importance of fitness, not just as at a physical standpoint, but also at a military or a, at a mental standpoint. So in the military, you know, you're, you're physically fit. You're, you're always training for the fight, always training to go to war because the fitter you are, the better your chances of survival are, but also the, the job is, is a difficult one and high demanding. But the other aspect that I didn't really grasp back then was kind of the the mental aspect of it. And I think I kind of had that aha moment when I went to a seminar put on by Bruce Siddle, who has done a lot of research in the sympathetic nervous system and the fight, fight flight, or freeze, and he's written a, a lot of good books. But he, he talked about different ways people cope with the stress, but one one correlation that that came was that by doing these these hard things or these these hard physical training, you're already putting your body in stress, and so your your mind's used to it, and you're you're able to handle more stress the more physically fit you are because your body's used to being in under stress. If that makes sense, completely. And so I I do think that that plays a huge mental aspect of things. And, uh, I mean, I, I quit working out for three years. I kind of got fat and lazy and yeah, I mean, that was some of the times that I was at my low points and like mentally just couldn't handle stuff and the aches and pains of, of the previous job. You know, I got injuries too, bad back, bad knees and, uh, you know, gaining that extra weight, put extra stress on my body and so I hurt more but really the the mental aspect of it I think was the biggest benefit and that's something that I've recently understood more because I've been on both sides and I think my body's able to handle that stress a little bit better just as long as I'm being consistent with working out and I probably work out a little more intense than, than I should but for me, it's kind of a way to escape my mind. And you also teach people, too, right? Yeah, so I've volunteered at a nonprofit gym, and I've been able to help uh, other veterans that are kind of in that transition period. And they're from all over the country, and it's been it's been good to be able to to give back and to help out and maybe give advice because I know there's a lot of mistakes I made, and maybe if I can keep somebody from making those mistakes, but still learning from mine definitely would be beneficial. If you could give everybody one trait, what what trait would you give them? I think the world would be a better place if if you had a problem with somebody, like talking it out. So instead of talking behind somebody's back or or doing all the stupid shit that goes on nowadays, it would be so much better like in the military, if you had a problem with somebody or there was a problem with anything, you spoke up you talked about it, you dealt with it, you worked through it, and you were good to go. Like, instead of letting this shit, like, linger and, and having bad feelings for somebody. And I I think, in my mind, it would be so much better if people could just deal with the confrontation, talk about it, 
or if somebody wrongs you, stand up for yourself and just deal with it. I totally agree with that. I take it you don't get nervous around confrontations. I, I think in a way I, I like it. And so for a while I've had to kind of take a step back and I've, I'm trying to find that middle ground because I'll go from, from one to a hundred at the snap of a finger, which isn't good. So I think in a way I've had to kind of step back from that. So now it's just trying to figure out that middle ground, which is something I'm, I'm working on. Cause I mean, by me going to a hundred, I mean, it's not helping the situation either. And me not standing up for myself isn't doing anything either because I mean, it's just like most people like that stuff will bother you until you take care of it. So it's like, if you can take care of that, that situation then and there, your mind's going to be clear later. It's not going to be on your mind for the next week. And it, it's a difficult one. So I'm, I'm trying to find that balance. You're absolutely right. I think we're all trying to find that balance. <laughs> um, if you could go back in time, would there be a particular point in your life you'd give yourself advice? And, and would you have listened to that advice? I think when I first started realizing some of the issues I was having with the transition to civilian life, uh, probably getting help sooner than later. But I doubt I probably would have taken that advice, honestly. Like, it, it took a while before I got help. You had mentioned to me earlier that this picture on the wall meant a great deal to you. Yeah, so we had a, a painter. His name is Dietz. He does a lot of military paintings. And uh, one of the cities we liberated was Karbala. And so he painted a picture of my unit called Strike on Karbala. And uh, I ordered one of the paintings when I got back, or one of the prints, and then I got it framed and put one of the hearts that were on my helmet in there, and then I have one of the patches from my uniform on there, and then also I put my combat infantry badge that I earned on it, and yeah, it's one of the keepsakes I got, I guess. I keep it upstairs in my office. Not a lot of people see it. I, I think that's one thing I struggle with is, is not talking a lot about it. I mean, this is probably the most open I've been with with somebody. <laughs> um, but if it can help people, it's, it's definitely worth doing, I guess, even if I'm a little uncomfortable. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking to me about all this. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm starting this podcast because I want to interview people I admire. And you're absolutely one of those people. You've been through a lot and you continue to keep going and continue to better yourself every day. You inspire me to do more because you've already done so much in your life and you, your reasoning for doing everything that you've done and your reasoning to continue bettering yourself is just really admirable. I, I hope eventually that you can see yourself the way the way that I see you. I was so excited to meet you the first time Parker had told me Parker told me about you and I was just like, holy shit, like this guy sounds incredible. And the other reason I wanted to start 
this podcast and I really wanted you to be on it is because I feel like it's it's so easy to to feel like you're alone and to feel like you're the only one that's that's been through certain things and then people don't talk about it and because of that and I'm saying this because because I've done this is that you don't talk about it and then it gets that much worse and you feel like there's nobody out there that could possibly understand and that could possibly like love you if they knew if they knew everything and I just want this to be a place where I don't know where people can relate where people can feel understood and I feel like if we're all more open like this then people can think oh nobody totally has their shit together and everybody's everybody's just on a different part of the journey but struggling with sometimes similar things you know yeah I appreciate that I think you're giving me way too much credit but I do appreciate that and I I think it's great that you're doing the podcast. I think it will help bridge that gap between the stigma that people have for a lot of things, um, not just with the PTSD, but what other, whatever issues kind of like you're, you're talking about and kind of bridging that gap. And cause I think it's, you're, you're right. You know, some of the things that, that people get involved in, you know, you wonder if people could love you still regardless of things you've done so yeah totally understand that thanks for for doing this